The force that has increased house prices so much in the past will not likely be at play in the future. In other words, interest rates will not be on a downward trajectory year after year on average into the future. There's a fine line to toe in regards to trying to encourage and incentivize increased building. The single most important factor behind this huge increase in prices has been the decline in interest rates. Nothing's completely risk-free. Governments do there have political decisions to make about the level of net migration they want to see in the UK. Hello and welcome back again to this episode of the Marginal Bubble podcast. In today's episode, I sit down to talk with Professor David Miles CBE to discuss real house price inflation and the role interest rates play in this regard, amongst other factors. David is a professor of financial economics at Imperial University, has held the position of chief UK economist at both Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley Investment Banks, and was a member of the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England from 2009 to 2015. As ever, reference research material is included in the description down below, and without further ado, let's get into the episode. Enjoy. You mentioned in the paper that real house prices in the UK have almost quadrupled over the, the past 40 years. Yeah. What do you think have been the core drivers behind this change? I think there are three, uh, and one of them is much more important than the other two. Um, okay. The first is that the population of the UK has increased quite substantially since the early 1980s, and the level of house building has probably lagged behind the rise in the population. The second is that for most of that period, thankfully, people's incomes on the whole have tended to go up. And as people's incomes go up, naturally, they will look to spend some of the extra income on housing and live in sort of slightly nice places, slightly bigger places maybe. Mm -hmm. And that's the second factor. The third, which I think is significantly more important than those two, is that on average over the last 40 years, the level of interest rates, which, which drives the cost of mortgages and borrowing, has yep. fallen very substantially. And that I think, has reduced the effective cost of borrowing and expanded people's ability to pay more for housing than um, those other factors. And that's been the single most important cause of what has been a truly enormous rise in the price of something that's one of the most important prices anybody faces. I mean, think about what people spend their money on. Housing is right at the top of the list. And in terms of their people's assets, the value of the house for most people, certainly as they move into the sort of second stage of their life, is probably the, one of the biggest sources of their wealth. So this increase in price is on, an, is on an item, housing, which is the most significant thing that people spend their money on. Yeah. Actually, that's something that I've, I've been quite interested in. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about how, quite frankly, in recent years, the, the interest rates have been lower than any sort of point in real history. I mean, just to give some anecdotal examples, my parents are just coming out of a period now where they've um, fixed an interest rate at, at, at the low end of 2%, which if you look back over the history of interest rates, it's just, it, it's crazily low. Yes. Um, why have we, and obviously this has started to rebound a little bit now, but even relatively speaking, they're still relatively low. You can go back, you know, however many years, 30, 40, 50 years, and you can see interest rates maybe even up to like 15%. If you go back far enough, maybe up to 20% or so. 
why have interest rates been so low? I don't really have an understanding as to why they have been so low. I think there are two forces, um, one of which is that after the global financial crisis, in most of the richer countries in the world, inflation dropped, which had, which had already been relatively low before the financial crisis some, what, 15 years ago now. Inflation dropped down to unusually low levels, I mean, close to zero across most of Europe, a little bit higher in the UK. But for much of the last 15 years, until very recently, inflation, uh, you know, one or two percent in the UK for most of the time. And central banks cut interest rates to essentially zero for most of the period from 2008 until relatively recently, in part to try and combat the recessionary forces uh, that had been unleashed by the financial crisis after Lehman Brothers goes down in uh, the autumn of 2008. So we've had low inflation until very recently. Central banks have wanted to keep interest rates very low to try and support demand in economies that have been hit by the financial crisis and had kept them there for really a very long period. There's another trend which, which is more long lasting than that, which really goes back and begins in the early 80s, which is that the country, countries in the world which are now enormous in terms of their trade with the rest of the world and their economic heft, their size of the economies, but I'm thinking particularly of India and particularly China, if you go back 40 years, we're doing very little trade with the rest of the world. Um, China was not open to globalization. Um, and then really starting, I suppose, in the early 1990s, China begins to open up to trade, begins to export on an enormous scale to the rest of the world, becomes a manufacturing superpower, and has an extraordinarily high savings rate. The savings rate in China has been around for much of the last 20, 30 years, 40% of its GDP, 40% of its total income that it generates is savings. In the UK, that number is more like 10 or 12%. So it's saving three times as much of its income as is typical for a high income European, North American, Australia, Japan type economy. And a lot of that saving is channeled into the global financial markets. And that has meant that there's been some economists talk about a glut of savings coming not from within the rich countries of the world, but from the newly fast growing industrializing countries in the world and particularly China. And if you think about the economics of interest rates, there's a lot of people in the world in, in total trying to save and the level of investment in the world stays about where it was then you've got a force which is driving down interest rates in financial markets. The more there are people wishing to save money and the fewer, relatively fewer people who are trying to borrow money, then the interest rate that clears the market and matches global savings against global investment gets driven mm. down. And that has been another force at work, which over a longer period than just since the financial crisis, has taken the lev the cost, the real cost uh, of borrowing money down 
until extremely recently in the last couple of years, maybe we could come back to the last couple of years later, has driven that cost of borrowing down. Mm. And so I see, and I, you talk about India and China there. Obviously, I can't remember this, the statistics from 1990, but obviously both India and China represent a, a huge portion of the global population, right? Yes, so at, at least north of north of like 40%. And, and I, think, I think it's much more now. I'm just sort of being conservative because being in the 90s. And so, so if suddenly, if you have a significant portion of the world's population that is suddenly, because they're industrializing and pump, becoming more global, um, producing a lot more output, that's going to push more output during the world, which is fantastic. But also, I guess, from a cultural standpoint, they're just like more used to saving. And because, because of all this extra output as well, and the cultural ties there, because savings obviously are linked to investments and a lot of it, that investment got put back into firms and things like that. And so you have a situation where as a result, interest rates have been sort of abnormally low. Um, probably that I would imagine that you couldn't be sustained over the long term. I'm actually quite curious to almost now, and I don't know whether you'll have an answer for me on this. Um, as those two countries in particular start to move, I would call them developing countries, but mm -hmm. there's, or, um, or maybe middle income countries, but they're certainly developing um, burgeoning middle classes. I know that, you know, um, one example of which I know China's uh, car ownership average rates on households is, is increasing exponentially, mm -hmm. which means, you know, they're buying more things that we would consider a thought of middle, middle incomes or the middle classes in the Western countries, as both India and China start to move, or if they will move, I, I imagine they will, but maybe they're not, move towards more developed countries with a more educated and productive um, burgeoning middle class. How do you see the trends then moving forward? Well, you're right. Um, spending patterns, particularly within China, um, are beginning to change. I talked earlier about the savings rate being extraordinarily high, and that's true if you take the last two or three decades, maybe the last 30 years or so, but that savings rate is coming down. Hmm. Uh, and as you say, as there's a, an increasing um, proportion of households that now want to spend a bit more, they've accumulated savings, their savings rate is lower, and that driving force behind lower interest rates globally that demand for assets from people saving in China and other fast growing countries is now playing less of a role. I think that's one factor, which probably means that as you look forward, uh, interest rates may be higher than they have been in the past. And let's see how that plays out. I mean, there's another force at work, which is a, 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 a shorter term, less structural underlying change which is the, the pickup in inflation in the last few years and central banks increasing interest rates very significantly in a short time period to try and offset the inflation. That I think is in, is in a different category, that's a different factor. But there's this underlying longer term thing, which has been a force behind lower interest rates over the last, and falling interest rates over the last 40 years, which I think is plausibly turning a corner now. Mm, I see. Um, you also mentioned in, in, in the study that real house price growth in the UK has been one of the highest among the G7 over the past 40, yeah. 50 years. Um, obviously, the G7 may, being countries that are probably more economically similar to the UK in that yeah. regard in terms of their size and their, their influence. Uh, why is it that the UK in particular has been higher end of this, on, on the end of the spectrum? Obviously, the factors we just talked about there 
other important factors but obviously they're they're, they're factors that affect you know the globe you know the globe yeah. in many ways right because they're so intrinsically linked to these developing economies so why is it that the uk in particular do you believe um or is potentially unknown as to why that we're the some of the highest in you know the g7 yeah. Well, I mean, one factor is that in an environment where the demand for housing because of population and rising income and falling interest rates on average, in an environment where that demand has naturally increased, the level of house building in the UK, the supply response, if you will, has been uh, amongst the lowest in the rich countries in the world. And there are all kinds of potential reasons for that, the UK, particularly England, is a densely populated country. And although we're not literally running out of room, there are uh, constraints on new house building, which are probably a bit stronger than a country like the US. Around some cities in the US, there are constraints on building. You know, San Francisco, New York, already built up. They're at the sea, there are limits to how far you can build out. Um, but then if you look at um, cities like Dallas and Texas, which are built on a sort of flat plain with almost infinite amounts of land around them you can expand into. And in the US, as demand has increased, the supply in, in, in very rapidly growing uh, cities where there aren't limits on building new housing, and a lot of them are in Texas actually, um, the supply has increased to match it and it's generated a, a lower increase in house prices. Now the UK doesn't have a city like Dallas or Texas, because you could just right. expand and expand and expand. Um, and so we've had a lower supply response in the UK. I, I, see. I think it's also the case that if you, if you get into the sort of nitty gritty of measuring what has happened to interest rates, they've been on a declining trend and it's become cheaper to borrow in most of the G7 rich countries. But it looks like they, they've fallen even more in the UK. Than, than is on average true in the G7 countries. So a bigger boost to demand, a less response to supply of house, new housing. Yeah, right. And particularly in regards to, for example, London, where you know a significant portion of where the UK population resides, obviously yeah. they have like a green belt on the outside, which they're very adamant not to sort of go into. And so as a result, you're going to get in situations where people, you know, you can't just expand, which is good because you don't want necessarily as much urban sprawl, but at the same time, this does put a lot of constraints on housing, particularly yeah. in sort of the southeast region, which is why, you know, I think it's a very significant contributing factor as to why the southeast obviously experienced such, you know, um, high levels of house price increases yeah. compared to maybe some other areas of the country as well that maybe do have a little bit more space. Um, and, it, and as you mentioned, the UK, particularly England, is actually quite densely populated, not nowhere near something like Bangladesh or Hong Kong, but relatively speaking, particularly in regards to some more developed countries. Um, with sort of reasonable sized populations. Uh, yeah, the, we are rather densely populated in that regard. Has government policy been effective in trying to build housing? Because it seems there seems to be more of a supply and demand issue in regards to as the population increases, um, despite the birth rate actually being below 2.1, we still have some um, immigration coming in. Um, from various corners of the globe and at the same time perhaps we're so at the same time we've got more demand for housing but at the same time we're not supplying enough and so it, it seems quite a just quite a simple supply and demand issue obviously the, what we've also seen recently 
in particular in, in the case to um, various examples, but I'll, I'll name one like aerated concrete, uh, concrete, sorry, in schools where there has been sort of shortcuts of uh, building legislation. And as a result, things have you know been able to have to be ripped out and starting over again, which have increased business costs over the long run. So I imagine here there's a almost like a fine line to toe in regards to trying to encourage and incentivize increased building on a restricted amount of land that's available, whilst also trying to make sure regulation is in place to make sure corners aren't cut and to keep people safe. Um, Grenfell is another example where they used obviously um, non-flame retardant cladding and things like that. What can the government really do to incentivize increased house price production whilst main, maintaining this, uh, the quality and um, the safety that we would expect? Well, it's a, I, I think it's difficult. Uh, that's, that's obvious in a way. Yeah, yeah of course. And the reason it's difficult is partly, we've mentioned already, just the, the, the difference in the geography of the UK. I mean, if you compare the US, house prices, real house prices in the US have not risen by as much as in the UK. I mean, they have in certain areas in the US. In um, you know New York, Boston, San Francisco, house prices have gone up a lot, but it's been offset at the national level in the US by the huge expansion in some cities where it's much easier to expand and just increase the size of the city by going going out. And if you think about a city as like a circle in some cases, just make the circle bigger. And you know, I mentioned Dallas and Houston tremendously fast-growing cities in, in the US over the last 20 years, um, and really almost limitless ability to expand and just build on new land. There's no shortage of land there. In the UK, a lot of the demand for housing, and a lot, obviously the place where house prices have risen most and are most expensive, is, is around London. We're a, we're a slightly lopsided, more, a more lopsided country than many other rich countries in being so dominated by one area, the southeast. And there you do run into a, a trade-off between you know, wanting to build more housing and a, a green belt and trying to preserve some barrier between London mm. becoming the whole of the southeast of England yeah. from you know, Cambridge in the northeast and oxford in the northwest and brighton in the south i mean you could imagine a london that that eventually envelops the whole of that area like like tokyo in japan for example like tokyo yes exactly um and governments have been unwilling to see that happen Hmm. uh for not not because they're short-sighted and blind and stupid, but we might not want the UK to look like that. And no, there's a course. price to be paid if that's what you, what you do. And that price is high if, as has been true over the last 20 or 30 years, um, you know, the high-paid jobs, the fast-growing sectors in what's become a very service-dominated economy are mm. disproportionately in the southeast of England. Yeah. Now, you could say, well, why doesn't the government then just block economic expansion in the southeast and hope that it goes somewhere else, that it you know, goes to Leeds and Newcastle and um, you know, into Wales and into parts of Scotland? Um, yeah. Well, you might find that if you, block, if you block it too much, it doesn't go into the rest of the UK, it just goes to another country. So mm. there's, there's no easy answer to this. Some people, I, I think, are 
too optimistic about, oh, well, it's just been planning failures. It's just a series of mistakes by government over 40 years. I don't, I don't think it's that straightforward. There yeah. some real trade-offs here. Of course. And I think definitely the, the, the influence of this north-south divide we have in sort of our, the modern British economy, as you mentioned, it being very incredibly service sector based. Mm. Uh, and honestly, that predominantly being coming out of London as well. Um, does I do think make a lot of this impact worse like I say London does have more of these issues or at least the southeast of England compared to other areas in the UK such like in the north there's not like it's there's not like it's not like America where you have a crazy amount of land up north or in other places but it certainly would um, alleviate more pressure if more people were to move into those Hmm. less populated regions I think in many regards this is really what um, projects like HS2 were uh, trying to mitigate in in many um, uh, regards you know, increasing transport between those regions, uh, allowing less travel times means people can buy homes further out and still come in. And then as a result, richer people then move out and then they spend more money in their local communities while they're there. That increases commerce and businesses and trade in those areas. Um, Obviously that plan, that specific example hasn't worked out in the best manner, but I think there have been policies trying to sort of mitigate these effects, but I think it's just coming down to, like you say, that somehow we, I think we need to find a way to have more commerce and activity outside of London and sort of relying on it to a lesser degree. I think that would help significantly. Um, but sort of bringing us back to your research um, in the paper that you um, worked on, UK house prices and three decades of decline in the risk-free real interest rate. Um, can you outline for me the goals and the aims of this study and what you were trying to achieve with this research? Well, well, the main aim was try, trying to understand what has been, <clears throat> in many ways, quite remarkable development, which is just that houses have become, I mean, about four times as expensive relative to the other things that we spend money on. So when, when we mm. talk about house prices being four times higher, what I mean by that is that if you, if you measure, um, you know, the average prices of the things that make up purchases by households, you know, food, clothes, heating, housing, cars, all the stuff people spend money on. Houses have risen four times faster than the average price of things that people spend their money on. And that is that is extraordinary given how significant housing is. And the main purpose of it was, well, what, how did that happen? Why did that happen? Some people were of the view, well, it's just a long-term bubble that prices are just completely unsustainable of houses. There's no underlying fundamental economic story that can make sense of it in the UK. It's just that they're ludicrously overvalued and there's gonna be one almighty crash of house prices. And the paper set out to see whether that might be the factor that you just, you simply couldn't understand this thing in terms of economic fundamentals. And the conclusion we reached was that no, you could, for all the reasons that we've been discussing primary amongst which is the fall in interest rates, but then the rise in incomes and population and limits on um, how many houses have been built. So it was primarily to try and understand what had happened and then to speculate a little bit on, well, so what, what next? I mean, if the next 40 years were to be like the last 40 years and houses would become another four times as expensive, they were 16 times as expensive as they were back in, 19, in the early 1980s, 
then you might say, well, how can any, how will anybody be able to afford a house? Well, of course, if nobody really could afford a house, that couldn't be, that couldn't be where you got to. Um, and yeah. you can't have an equilibrium in a housing market where literally nobody, apart from you know, a tiny percentage of the population, can buy houses. So that can't happen. And so the interesting question is, well, where do you go next? And part, part of the answer to that was that it's very unlikely that the next 40 years can look like the last 40 years as regards interest rates, the decline of which I think has been the single most important factor in understanding the past. And indeed, since that paper was written a few years ago, the interest rates have indeed begun to increase. Now that's, that's more to do with a short-term phenomena of inflation rising. But I think that that trend, the 40 year decline in, on average in interest rates is extremely unlikely to be replicated in the next 40 years. So I think that's one factor which will be different and you know, unlikely to mean that we get another 40 years of house prices rising at four times as fast as most of the other things that people spend money on. Yeah, it is interesting. And I think this is something I try to, to explain when I think I talk to people, because I think people always get caught up, I think, in in our daily lives when we say, oh, I, you know, when I was X, I bought a house and the deposit was, you know, two pounds. I'm being facetious, but you know, yeah, okay. you know what I mean? It's like two grand or whatever it was. But of course, like back then, wages were less, inflation yeah. and all this kind of yeah. factor. So it's really hard to make an, a comparison. Um, what I always point people to is looking at the average income in the UK to the average house price, because fundamentally for most people, or 99.9% of people, their ability to afford a house is going to be based on their salary or their income. Like that's yeah. going to be for the majority of people, that's going to be the case. And so if you can examine the relationship between the average income and then the average house price, you're going to have, a, a I think, a pretty strong reflection. Obviously, there's things in there that could maybe distort it in regards to equity and distribution of that and whether, whether it's top heavy or bottom heavy, but generally speaking, I think you get a good understanding. And I think in the mid nineties, it was approximately about three and a half times uh, that the average house price was three and a half times the average annual wage in the UK. And when you look at those figures now, we're looking at sort of northwards of seven, 8%, yeah. uh, uh, sorry, seven, eight times that, um, which, when you just look at that nominally, I think it explains a lot of the reasons why it is so much harder to buy houses, particularly in sort of getting onto the housing ladder is just quite frankly, building up enough, uh, one money for a deposit, but quite frankly, being able to get a loan, uh, for X amount, um, the increases and things like that. Um, it would also indicate as well, potentially that because we do have an, in, uh, an aging population as well, I think that because there are less people being born, I think houses are maybe being stored up, maybe in some of the higher age ranges. And I think once uh, the birth rate maybe peters out and sort of like settles, settles on a figure, um, and enough time has passed. And as the, you know, the, the demographic period pyramid moves forward, we'll probably have a, an additional supply is basically unfortunate, you know, it's quite morbid, but people will start dying. And those houses and properties start coming back onto the matter. So I do think there is some indication to that, that there will be an increase in supply eventually, but it's really this sort of relationship between average incomes and average house prices. I think is really causing the biggest amount of um, economic factors for the, the lives of the general public, I would say. I mean, you're right. House, house prices have risen relative to 
incomes, I mean, they've roughly doubled in the last mm. 30 odd years. But coming back to interest rates, you might ask, well, what, how did that happen? Well, part of the reason it happened was that if, if, in, if you think about interest rates being half the level that they were 30, 40 years ago, you could take a mortgage which was twice as high relative to your income. Yep. And the interest cost of that mortgage, which is what matters to most people, can I pay the monthly interest rate, mm -hmm. has not increased relative to your people's income. So that's, that, I think, is why you can sustain what is an extraordinary increase in the cost of, a, of an unchanging house relative to people's incomes. That doubles relative to people's incomes, but if interest rates halve, in some sense, affordability has been maintained, and that can be still an equilibrium in the housing market. And I think that is what has happened. Yeah, and that's the, that's the big factor is... Yeah, you know when interest rates are lower, I say you can borrow more. Yeah, and that might have also maybe in, in led to maybe inflating the house prices. I would say because if you can, if it's cheaper to borrow, that means funds are more freely available for you to be able to access. And as a result, if if something's more in supply, then that means you're probably going to be able to buy high houses, yeah. or people are more willing to spend higher. And as a result, maybe the house price has been more inflated. If we were to see, um, I don't necessarily think it's going this way, because I do believe that the, the recent indication is that interest rates will potentially be dropping. I don't know if you can confirm that or not. Um, in regards to if interest rates were to continue to increase, whether we would actually see house prices over the long run actually decreasing. Well, I mean, you're right that interest rates which a couple of years ago, the, the Bank of England was setting interest rates essentially at zero. Now they were at five and a bit percent. That's a big increase in a short period. And who knows, mm -hmm. maybe the next, the next move <clears throat> from the Bank of England might be interest rates a little bit lower because inflation having gone up a lot, was 11% at the beginning of two, 2023, is now back down at about you know 4% or so. So there's the short term ups, ups and downs bits and pieces, and they have an impact on the housing market. I think sort of the longer term drivers are not so much inflation, which can be quite variable and up and down in the short run, but they come back to these more fundamental forces about the balance between overall savings and not just in the UK, because the UK is influenced by conditions in global financial markets and not just what's happening in this country. But I think there are some forces there that at, at least will prevent a continuing decline, which has been the story of the last 40 years in interest rates. Quite how, 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 start again, quite how high interest rates will go and whether they'll be on an upward trajectory for the next few decades, unlike the downward trajectory looking backwards. That's a hard one to judge, but I'm more confident, I'm more confident that the force that has increased house prices so much in the past will not likely be at play in the future. In other words, interest rates will not be on a downward trajectory year after year on average into the future in the way that they were in the past. I'm fairly confident about that. Sure. And in, and in regards to this research, what were the methodologies you used? Um, what data sets did you use? How did you go about acquiring information? And how did you manipulate the, data, um, the, the study and the research? Well, there's pretty good data in the UK 
first of all, on what has happened to house prices, average house prices across the UK, not difficult to find those measures there over the last 40 years, and indeed over longer periods than, than just the last 40 years. We've also got very good data on, on interest rates, interest rates on mortgages, interest rates set by the Bank of England, well, interest rates by the Bank of England, you can go back to 1694 when the Bank of England was established. So you can get, you know, 330 odd years of Bank of England interest rates very accurately. We know roughly what's happened to average incomes in the UK. Um, and so it's, it's possible to sort of construct data on many of the ingredients that feed into both the demand side for housing. And then on the supply side, we've got some pretty good information on how many houses have been built in the UK and indeed how many houses there, there are in the UK right now. So all the sort of component bits of the supply and demand drivers in the housing market, one can get pretty good data in the UK. Uh, another factor that's been important is the tax system, which you know has changed over over, uh, over time. So once one can measure all those things, one can assess what has been the change on the demand side relative to the supply side. And of course the price of housing is, is what balances demand against supply. I mean, it's, in some sense, it's as simple as that. It's like, you know, most markets, the price is not fixed by government. Um, it is what people will pay for houses and what people who have houses to sell are willing to accept. I mean, it's a, it's a market, you know, par excellence, actually. It's a market which balances supply and demand through, uh, through the price mechanism. So we can, you know, collect all that data, look what's happened over the last 40 years and try to work out what have been the big drivers on the demand side that have been behind the sort of rising trajectory of prices. I see. And what were the, the conclusions that you, you were able to draw from the research? Well, as I say, the, the, the main one was that the single most important factor behind this huge increase in prices <clears throat> has been the decline in interest rates, coming in an environment where population has been rising, average incomes have been rising, and the rate of new house building has not matched that increase in demand. It's, it's inevitable almost that in that environment, the, the price to clear the market will be rising. And it has a lot. I see. Um, you also um, obviously quite intrinsic to this. You, you mentioned the risk-free rate <laughs> quite a lot in this in this um, in this study. Uh, for those who are unaware, would you mind just explaining that a little bit? And also in regards to its importance yeah. for understanding economic activity. Well, I mean, people people and we've done it on this conversation. People talk about the interest rate as if there was a single number. I mean, there isn't a single number. There's the interest rate that the Bank of England sets, but that's that's not the same as the interest rate that you or I would face if you were borrowing um, on a mortgage. So there's a difference between the two. And there's the interest rate the government pays when it issues government bonds, which are relatively safe assets. Um, but if you were lending money to a startup company, which is very risky, you'd want a higher interest rate than if you were lending money to the UK government by buying a government bond. So actually there's a whole array of different interest rates but um, in many ways, the rate set by the Bank of England and the rate that the government is paying on its government debt are the anchor against which you could measure other interest rates. In fact, in the mortgage market, mortgage lending is one of the safest forms of lending that banks and building societies make 
because you have the collateral of the house. Even if the person you've lent money to is no longer able to pay the mortgage after a few years because interest rates have gone up or they lost their job or whatever, the bank or the building society can repossess the property. And at times in the past, that has certainly happened on a large scale. And so mortgage lending is one of the safest forms of lending that banks and building societies undertake. And because of that, the difference between the interest rate the government can get when it issues debt and the interest rate that you and I pay on a mortgage is not, is not enormous and it's relatively stable. Um, and so the difference between what you might call the safest interest rates, Bank of England rate, rates the government pays on borrowing when it's borrowing for 10, 20, 30 years in the bond market, the difference between those what are called safe interest rates and the rate that you and I might pay on a mortgage um, is relatively small. I mean, maybe it's like a percent or so. So if bank rates 4% or 5%, the mortgage rate typically might be you know, a percent above that. And that margin has been relatively stable. So understanding what has driven what I call the safe interest rate actually goes a very long way to understand what's happened to mortgage interest rates. Yeah, right. No, I think that makes sense. Um, particularly on those understanding, so the risk-free rate or establishing a risk-free rate and <laughs> well, as risk-free as you can actually sort of determine, I would say, because yeah. you know, nothing's completely risk-free if you want to go into that, but as risk-free as you could possibly find in, in that regard, it's, yeah, it's intrinsically rent to interest rates, I think, in that manner. One thing, uh, moving away from interest rates, I guess a little bit, um, one thing that I have heard mentioned from political commentators is the changing in view, I don't, actually, I don't even think perception is the right word, of houses um, as investment vehicles, as opposed to like discretionary consumer spending. Mm. Um, and you can definitely see that I think intrinsically people, um, I can just talk to sort of my parents' generation and their generation before that, very much so buying a house was very much intrinsic to investing and particularly for your retirement essentially um and the monies you'd be able to and increasing your wealth whereas potentially further back in time it was more considered more of a discretionary spending particularly when you look at maybe not in the uk but places like america where particular house prices and sort of erecting buildings of different materials is much more of a consumer-led activity can you t perhaps talk to the differences between considering housing as like a consumer expenditure and as an investment vehicle and whether and what are those relative impacts on the economy mm. essentially well but that, that that balance of you know how much of your demand for housing is it an intrinsic demand for somewhere to live and how much is it well that's a good place to accumulate wealth because prices tend to go up People's view on that naturally has changed over time. I mean, if you go back, I mean, a long time, um, you know, maybe a hundred years, between the 1920s and maybe the 1970s, house prices relative to people's incomes, relative to other assets, didn't rise as much as they have in the in the more recent decades, 1980 up to you know a few years ago. And because of that, naturally enough, there was a less of a view in the 19. 30s and 50s and 60s, that housing was something that was going to generate a lot of income and wealth for you in the future. 
Not surprisingly, given what's happened since the 1980s, there's been a, a sort of a, a slight change in people's view on that because by the time you get to the 1990s and into the year 2000, people could look back at the last 20, 30 years and say, wow, I mean, houses have just outperformed most other assets as a place to save money. So why wouldn't you want to buy a house as soon as you could and stretch you know, the, the mortgage so that it is as large as it could be because actually it'll pay for itself over time and more. And that has been true looking backwards. And it wasn't true a hundred years ago, but it has been true for the last 40 odd years. So it's perhaps not surprising in that environment that um, you know, there's a bit of a change in people's attitudes to, to housing. Now, it may well be changing because, I mean, the last few years haven't quite looked like that. Just in the last couple of years, house prices on average across the UK have not risen rapidly. Think of why. First, the interest rates have gone up very recently. Then you have the blow of COVID. And after that, the inflation that came with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So there have been forces at play that have made the last couple of years periods when house prices haven't risen uh, as much as on average they have in, in the last you know, 30 or 40 years. Um, allied with the fact that for young people, it is much more difficult now to do what was common 20, 30 years ago, which was sometime in people's you know, mid, late 20s to be able to borrow enough to buy um, an apartment, a flat, a small house. The average age at which people buy their first property now in the UK is probably more like mid-30s than the mid-20s it was at times a couple of decades ago. Yeah, I believe the average age of first-time buyers is uh, was in 2005, 30 to 32, but I think is in, increased over that time to uh, the higher figure now, I do. Yeah, believe, it's probably more, more like mid-30s now. I think if you go back to... Um, yeah, it's the, the 33 to 30. It was probably late 20s. So that's, I mean, that's a big change. That's a big change. Absolutely. Um, it's also linked to how many first time buyers I think we were also having as well. I think in 2006, we had about 400, just over 400,000 first time buyers. And then obviously in 2008, that dropped significantly to about 191,000. Um, but yeah. that progressively has increased over time in 2021, back up to 408,000. And then 2022, given the the economic environment sort of dropped to 370 again but uh, you can quite plainly see that the demand and that for first-time buyers is still relatively at sort of the same level even even with those dips and things like that but as you said with the scarcity of land the increasing populations and the impact of interest rates it's obviously going to play a very very significant role is there anything i mean we've, we've kind of touched on this already in, in many regards but is there something that the government can do policy-wise to help sort of mitigate this issue, um, issue? Because as you mentioned, for a lot of young people, it's very, very difficult to go on the housing ladder at the moment. Is there something that we can be doing? Is there a uh, navigation of the, bu the bureaucracy around construction? Is there anything that they can do in terms of lending uh, to young people? I know there's various schemes in that regard. Is there something of like a policy that we could we could be implementing to mitigate this issue somewhat? Well, we've talked a bit about planning restrictions uh, around many cities, particularly in the southeast of England. Um, 
but that's it. I mean, some people say the answer is planning, you know, build more houses. Mm -hmm. um, that makes it sound very easy as if there's been a sort of silly policy of blocking house building and you just need to unblock that and then houses will become more plentiful and cheaper and people can buy houses in their late 20s again rather than mm -hmm. their 30s. Um, I think that's, that's too simplistic. It's not, it's not as if politicians are unaware of all those issues. They're painfully aware of them. It's just that the places where the demand for housing is strongest and where house builders would most like to build houses are uh, in the southeast of England, which is crowded already. Infrastructure and transport infrastructure is under pressure. Um, and you have the Green Belt. And it's very obvious that governments uh, allowing major expansion of building onto the Green Belt would be popular with many people because it would make houses more affordable but extremely unpopular with uh, many other people so it's not as if there's a there's a sort of simple answer to this issue um i mean how these pressures play out will depend on population developments in the uk um as well as interest rates and incomes and how many houses are built um and there, I mean, the government does have a lever, not, not on, no direct lever at all on the decisions of the populations already in the UK about how many children they have, but about the scales of net immigration. And that's a hugely controversial issue, but it's one that is very significant to the question, what happens to the population of the UK over the next 10, 20 years? Um, and governments do there have political decisions to make about the level of net migration they want to see in the UK. Is there any sort of research you're working on that you would like to draw the attentions of the listeners to? Yeah, let me just say something briefly, briefly on that. I think one, one interesting issue, which I think we're all aware of, is just one big thing that's happened in the last three or four years, the side effect of COVID really, is just the increasing ability of people to work from home. And mm -hmm. It looks now like many companies, of course, not all, but many companies are now willing for people to work one, two, sometimes even three days from home. Um, you know, some jobs make that suitable. Other jobs, you know, if you're, a, you know, a nurse or a, a fireman or um, you work in the care sector or you're a cleaner or work in a bar, I mean, you can't really work from home. So there are lots of, there are lots of occupations where it doesn't work at all, but there are many where it, it really does. And increasingly companies in those sectors are willing and, and, their, and their workforce expect them to allow them to work from home. Now that changes the calculation as to the trade-off between, you know, I, I need to live near where I work, which is quite often near the center of cities where it's expensive, or do I live further out and, and spend lots of time traveling and spend quite a lot on transport? And that balance has always been there. It's been there for hundreds of years in every housing market. And it explains why typically the further you move away from big cities, on average, things get cheaper. Um, but that, that trade-off is very different in a world in which many people can work from home two days a week. They're more able then to put up with a longer commute on the two or three days when they do go in and the transport costs are lower might that have a significant impact on the housing market? And I think the answer to that is it probably will. And I've been doing some work with a colleague of mine at Imperial College, Professor James Sefton. And um, we've written a couple of things recently on trying to 
assess the scale of the impact that that might have on the distribution of house prices within countries, focusing on, on, on the UK to a large extent. And our conclusion is um, we, think, we think it might do, but it takes quite a long time for that to happen. First of all, companies need to decide what is the acceptable practice amongst our workforce and coming in to the office or the place of work relative to working from home. And then the workforce need to, once, once there's a firmly established rule about we only need to go in three days a week, say, what then is the optimal place to live? And it's very likely to be different from, you know, maybe two or three years ago, where, of course, the expectation was, well, of course, you go into work five days a week. So I think that's a really big issue in the UK. And actually, it's relevant to a lot of the issues we've been talking about, about planning and where you build houses and where people um, want to live. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. Um, thank you very much for your time, David. Um, I'll, I'll, thank you for joining us, everyone. Uh, links to his research will be in the in the description down below. Um, but until next time, see you soon. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for watching this episode of the Marginal Babble podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider liking and subscribing down below, as well as commenting any future topics you would like to see discussed. But until then, see you soon.